0: Hi, my name is Christy Kramer and this is Michigan Unsolved, the true crime podcast that is solely focusing on unsolved cases in Michigan. There is no case too small. My goal is to give victims of unsolved crimes the voice they deserve. friends. Welcome back. I am so, so, so glad to have you all back with me today. I cannot believe that this is going to be episode 20. I know that um, there's technically more than 20 shows per se, because we've had some two-parters, but this is literally case 20 or episode 20 that we've had. And I am just completely and utterly blown away by the support that I've gotten from so many people, the kind words, the messages, so many things that people have said have really encouraged me to keep going. And since I've kind of started this whole process since January, it's really made me make some life-changing decisions. And I've kind of decided to like, take a step back and review a lot of my goals going forward. I was reading something the other day that really kind of hit home. And it said, no matter how far you've gone on the wrong road, turn back. And it really, made me realize that it doesn't matter. Like, you know, I've been at my job for 25 years, essentially, like right out of right after I got out of high school, I've been at the with the same company. Um, And not that there's anything wrong with that, that that's great. You know, I feel that it's an accomplishment to be here for 25 years. But just I need to remember that it's always okay to make a change and to start on a new path or to turn around or to do something. And it's like completely okay to change the path of your life. And I think that that's so important that we need to remember that as human beings. Because I think a lot of times a lot of people get stuck in a rut. And um you know, when that happens, it can affect our mental health, our physical health, our spiritual health. It can affect so many things. It can affect how we are with our loved ones and our friends and our coworkers. So that's just something that I want you re- you guys to really think about this week is that you can literally change your life's path just by flipping a switch. Okay. And that's just by making one simple decision. About three months ago in February, I was feeling so, so sluggish. And you know how every, um, not every episode, but, you know, every couple of episodes, and I'm going to be talking about one today, but every couple of episodes, I I try to bring up something of importance, whether, you know, it's an aware, awareness month, you know, we, um, we've covered a few of those. And... I had, Like I said, I had been feeling extremely sluggish. I do suffer from multiple autoimmune diseases and um, it's genetic. My mom had them. I have them. There's a good possibility my brother has them and my son may get them. And um, because of those specific issues, your, your body is essentially fighting against itself and it makes things very difficult. So I've done a lot of research into how to start to reverse some of those things naturally. And it's really had me kind of refocus my, my goals on myself, instead of focusing on the things around me. And I can't tell you what a difference the last three months have been. I've stopped making other people a priority in my life. And I've started to make myself a priority. And that is, it's just been very eye opening for me. Um, I had been wanting, I, one of the things that I suffer from is something called, um, I'm probably going to pronounce it wrong, but it's, a, it's a form of hair loss called androgenic alopecia, which is essentially like uh, male pattern baldness in females. And I've been suffering since I was almost 19 years old. And I became a master of smoke and mirrors on how to cover it as best as I could. Like It was obvious that I had very thin hair and that it was thinning, but I don't think everyone knew how bad it was. And I had really wanted to not necessarily shave my head, but (laughs) to um, cut it to the point where I wasn't going to have to cover it with, um, like a, like almost like makeup. It's like a masking powder to cover the shape of, to cover the color of your scalp and all this other kind of stuff. And I didn't want to have to do that anymore. I mean, I'm 45 years old. I, you know, I needed to get to the point where I could embrace it, but I had been, um, in, I I don't want to call it a relationship, but I'd been kind of seeing somebody for seven years and, I didn't want this particular person to, I felt that as a woman, my hair was my identity. And because of the way it was, I did not feel that I was as much of a woman as others because I didn't have you know, the beautiful hair. And I didn't want him to think of me differently if I cut my hair really short. And I honestly, I got to the point where I said, this isn't about somebody else. It's about me and what I'm comfortable with and how I feel when I look in the mirror. And I made a huge decision um, a couple of days ago. And I literally, I went into the salon and she used the clippers that she would use on a man's head and she cut my hair with it. And I have felt so liberated since then. And it's just been an incredible experience. And I told myself at 45 years old, if you're going to rock the short spiky look, um, we might as well rock a nose ring too. And I went and got my nose pierced. And that is just, and I, you know, I've got 13 tattoos. I'm not, I'm not opposed to, jewelry, facial jewelry. I just never thought I've always wanted to do it. I just never thought I'd actually go through with it. And I did. And honestly, when I look in the mirror now, I smile. I'm happy. I feel so, I feel so mm, me, you know, and it's just, it's really been eye opening to me because it didn't happen overnight. Yeah. I made some decisions three months ago to start, you know, eating better, cutting out sugar, cutting out all processed foods, actually working out, using weights, doing yoga, things like that, journaling, stuff like that. And I made those changes, but it's not, it hasn't just been one change. You know, it's, it's a lot of little changes that I've done over the last three months, but it did initially take that one flip of a switch that kind of catapulted everything. And I'm, I'm just, Really, I know I've been rambling for seven minutes now, but I just wanted to say, please remember, it's totally okay to change the path of your life. If you are on a journey that does not make you happy, does not make you smile and does not bring you joy, then please take a moment, take five if you need, reflect regroup and make that change because nobody is going to make you happy but you and that is so 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 very important and I consider you know all of you are I feel like you're all my family I mean seriously like some of the things that you guys have been saying to me in the comments in the messages I mean I seriously like legit love all of you guys. And I want you all to be happy. So let's just move forward and not backwards. So with that, let's go into our, I don't really want to call it, call it the cause of the month, but May is, um, and this is a very special one for me. I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail about it. I am going to encourage you to do the research because there's so much out there. And there is, this is one of the diseases that I feel like we need a cure, probably because I watched it unfold very slowly and quickly at the same time. But the month of May is ALS Awareness Month. If you do not know what ALS is, it is also called Lou Gehrig's disease, and the actual name of it is amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. It's a progressive and fatal disease attacking the neurons that control voluntary movement. These neurons die over time. The result is the gradual loss of muscle movement, speech, swallowing, and eventually breathing. Unfortunately, people with ALS usually have a shortened lifespan and may die within a few years of diagnosis. The day that my dad was diagnosed, we were told he had two to five years. And he passed just after the two year mark. And I watched him from the time. His symptoms began at least eight months prior to diagnosis. It took quite a while for them to diagnose him and the symptoms were very progressive. And then from the point of diagnosis, it just continuously got worse. And the last year of my father's life, I had not heard his voice because he had lost his ability to speak. And one of the hardest parts of this disease is the fact that number one, there is no cure. There are some medications that can help prolong a person's life. Um, with the, there's two types. There's one type that, begins in the limbs. And there's another type that begins in the lungs. And the one that begins in the lungs generally is a faster paced disease progression. And that is what my dad had. And he was 100% mentally with it until the moment his heart gave out. And I think that that's extremely important for people to understand because in those last days, he made the conscious decision that he was not going to fight anymore and that he was going to peacefully pass on his own terms. But he actually was able to make that conscious decision because of the fact that he was 100% with it. ALS does not affect your brain function. Your memory is there. Your thought process is there. You are completely aware of everything around you. You cannot move. He could not walk. He could not speak. He could not move his arms. But he was very, very aware of everything that was going around, going on around him. And, um, I think that that is probably one of the most difficult parts is knowing that in his last moments, like he knew it was coming and I don't even know how to really process that information. You know, it's been, um, October will be, uh, Four years since he passed away and still after all this time, I do not know how to process the, the understanding that in those moments, right before he took his last breaths, as I sat by his bedside, he was completely and utterly aware of what was going on around him. So, we definitely we definitely need a cure and I I encourage all of you to google it, please. Google ALS awareness. Um Michigan, there the state of Michigan has two wonderful organizations. One of them um is the ALS Association and then uh there's the Mich- it's been so long, I'm sorry. Um, the Michigan Association of ALS Research, I believe. Um, I have to look that up again, and I will tell you in a hot second. But both of these uh, put on a lot of events. Um, ALS of Michigan is one of them. And then the ALS Association Michigan chapter is another big one. I'm sorry. I had those wrong. So it's the ALS association, Michigan chapter and ALS of Michigan. And both of those organizations do a lot for, um, ALS patients. They provide in-home care. They, they help with my, my dad, from the moment you were diagnosed, you qualify for hospice care because it is a terminal illness. They helped us navigate getting all that set up. Um, they helped they can help with bringing in equipment needed they put on a walk every year at the Detroit Zoo in Royal Oak to raise money that that would be the ALS association does that one and i actually participate in that in my and now uh, my dad actually did that walk twice he passed away um a week after the third walk after his diagnosis, he had planned on being there in his chair, but he passed away a week after that walk. But I was there that day, and I've done every walk since, and I will continue to do every walk in his memory. So, it I just really encourage everyone to to take a take a look at some of those websites, um, if you're ever interested in um, joining me for one of the walks, please feel free to message me on the Michigan Unsolved Facebook page. I would, um, love to have people join. Um, we, the walk, I believe is the first October of every, every year. So it's the sat, the first Saturday in October, I believe. So it's, it's definitely had a major impact on my life and I, we need a cure because I don't want anyone to have to suffer the way that he did. And it's honest to goodness, just heartbreaking. So I definitely encourage you to take a look into some of those websites. Like I said, just Google ALS awareness, and there's just so much data out there and information. And even just like the warning signs because there are a lot, and a lot of people don't like I said, my dad had symptoms for eight or nine months, I believe it was before he was diagnosed. And it took advocation. You know, they kept saying, we can't figure out what's wrong. We can't figure out what's wrong. And it took us pushing before they finally did. So again, and I mentioned advocation for your health before, but please, 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 if something does not feel right, it's not right. Advocate for your body, advocate for your health, because that's, that's all you can do. You have to advocate for yourself. So, okay. So we are going to get right into today's case. This is another one of those ones that technically, I'm going to say technically, is solved. Okay. I know this is an unsolved podcast. This case does have a killer in jail, serving a life sentence. He was found guilty. However, it is yet another no body case. Michigan is one of the few states that will prosecute no body cases, and I'm going to tell you uh, the evidence mounting up against this convicted killer. There, there's really no doubt in my mind that he did it. I mean, I completely understand that, but there's just there's a lot of gaps and a lot of holes. And again, no body. Like, where is this body? And I think to me, that is the hardest part. Because this this poor woman was a mom of a three-year-old boy. And we're going to talk about her son too. But there's only so much space in the world. Where do people put these bodies? I don't understand. Like, uh, these no body cases, where are these bodies going? And I did this, this case takes place in Norton Shores, Michigan, which is over on the West Coast, yeah, West Coast, Um, near like the Grand Rapids, Muskegon area. And I keep hearing I know you'll remember from the baby Kate case, which I think was what, like episode two or three, um, where her father said he essentially left her in the Manistee National Forest, which is this massive um, forest in mid-northern Michigan. Well, that's where a lot of people are believing this particular person's body was left because it's not that far away. (laughs) I don't. Understand, is, I, maybe it's like that old saying: if a if a tree falls in the middle of a forest, does anyone hear it? Is all of this land seriously never traveled, or, or what? I, I don't know. So we're gonna talk about uh, today's case, which is the disappearance. Of Jessica Lynn Haranga. So Jessica was born on July 16th, 1987. She had two sisters, Samantha and Angel, and they both just absolutely love their sister. Um, and she's very close to her mom as well. Prior to her disappearance, one of her sisters, Samantha, and her mom, Shelley, had moved away from Norton Shores. So they were not like right there in the area. Jessica had been dating a man for about five years and they had recently just gotten engaged and his name was Dakota and together they shared a three-year-old son named Zevin. So on April 26th, 2013, Jessica was 25 years old and she was a very small, petite woman. She was only about five foot one and 105 pounds. So, I mean, she's like very small in stature. Um, I would say maybe almost like a large child, I guess. I mean, just a very, very small woman. She was known as being an amazing mom, um, extremely friendly. She worked as a cashier at a local convenience store gas station type of place. And if you've ever been in that area, there's a lot of open space. There's not like a gas station on every corner. So a lot of people that worked in that that um. I cannot think of the word. Um, a lot of people who worked in that vicinity would go to that gas station. So she was friends with a lot of her customers. Some of them would like come hang out, have a cigarette with her. And she worked a late shift. She worked from 4.30 p.m. to about 11.30 p.m. I believe that the uh, gas station closed at about 11. So after she closed up, so she'd work until about 11.30. She was also really big into journaling. She kept journals and diaries and she kept track of like all of her inner thoughts and feelings about life and her relationship with Dakota and her relationship with her family and friends and stuff like that. So Dakota had actually recently lost his job and Jessica took on this um, later shift at the Exxon gas station from, like I said, from 430 to 1130, it was about two miles from their home. So Dakota stayed home with seven and Jessica would work this shift to basically, you know, to support the family. She, he took on the role. I don't want to say babysitter because it's his kid. He's not babysitting. He's providing, um, his, he's parenting his child. Um, And Jessica went to work. They shared a car. They only had one car. And actually, they had one cell phone, which her family and friends figured the purpose of the one cell phone was to save money, which I understand. As I said, she was very well loved by her customers. And in a way, that was great. In other ways, not so much because she was so loved by her customers. A couple of them actually expressed romantic intentions. Um, I do believe both that I read about were actually married men. <laughs> um, Jessica being very sweet and kind and caring, she turned them down gently, but I'm sure that made for some difficult interactions. Um, Actually, I believe on the night of the 26th, one of them actually like professed his love for her. Um, But that was earlier in the evening, maybe around 9 p.m. or so. So this particular gas station sat on Easternburg, which is just west of the entrance to US 31 in Norton Shores. So it's essentially like right near like the exit. So if you're going on a road trip, and you're on the highway, and you get you have to get gas, it's one of those gas stations that's going to be it's like almost like a like a travel center type of thing. You know, it's not tiny, by any means. Um, it's not like, you know, um, a place that has like one uh, vending machine, you know, it it is a bigger Gas station. Even ten years later, in two thousand twenty-three, there isn't a lot of business on that side of the highway. There, there are some buildings, but they they're further apart. Um, you can actually see it's so opened on that stretch of road on East Sternberg that just about from any direction, you can pretty much see the entire back of the gas station building which is extremely important and we'll get to that in a second so let's talk about uh thursday april 25th 2013. now as i said she was there later in the evening from 4 30 to 11 30. now in april here we are it's may 5th today so we're literally coming up on the we just passed the 10 year anniversary of this incident and by, I would say, 8.30, 9 o'clock maybe. I mean, it's getting, you know, pretty dark outside. So even though she's working until 11.30, it's dark fairly, still fairly early at this point of the year. So late that evening on Thursday, April 25th, one of Jessica's regular customers who was a woman actually kind of commented to Jessica she expressed her concern about Jessica working in the gas station by herself now Jessica's the only one working in the station um just her okay man in the cash register handling all the business so this this customer brought it up and she's like, you know, I'm not really, you know, it's like uncomfortable, you know, you should really say something. And a male customer who was also in the store kind of, I don't want to say listening in, but he was, he heard the conversation and he spoke up and he told her that it's okay. She's got her customers looking out for her. Now, I actually watched this woman, I watched some of the court hearing and this woman testified in court and she said that when the man made the comment about it's okay, she's got her customers looking out for her, that Jessica shook her head and actually chilled. Now, think about like if something kind of creeps you out, you get that mm, spine tingling chill. That's kind of what she did. And she said that it made her feel uncomfortable as well. Jessica's response, as well as the man's response, made her uncomfortable. So when after she completed her purchase, she went out to her car and she actually sat in the parking lot and watched the man leave. And she did not leave until the man left because that's how uncomfortable it made her. So that night after she locked up the station, she went home to Dakota, her fiancé, and her son, Zevin. So then the next day, on Friday, April 26th, she goes off to start her shift. Um, This is any ordinary shift that she's done many, many times. But uh, unfortunately, Jessica would not come home from that shift. So there is a little bit of a timeline here that we're going to go through. It's just a couple of points, but they're extremely important. At approximately 1052, the last transaction was registered on the cash register. Okay. And that was for the purchase of a cigarette lighter. They did track down the person who made that purchase and that person was cleared. At 11 p.m., the manager of the station and her husband had been on a date and they were riding their motorcycle past the store on the way home. And she noticed that, as I said, it's very open around there. So as they were driving down the road, they could actually see the backside of the store. So she noticed that there was a van parked behind the station Her and her husband pulled over for a moment because it was a little odd and they saw a man standing at the back of the van and he shut the hatch. She described the van to authorities as a silver minivan type of thing. Um, and that the man was white and approximately six foot tall with wavy hair. She did give a, like a composite sketch, but When I looked at them, when I looked at the approximate, um, and we've talked about my feelings on composite sketches based on distance, how accurate can they be from a distance, especially in the dark? So I wasn't even going to mention the fact that there was a composite sketch, but there was a composite sketch done based on the manager's um, eyewitness account. Like, how did she know he had wavy hair? She was on the road. He was behind the station. The station faced the um, Easternburg Road. So not only did she have to look beyond the parking lot, but then she was looking behind the station towards the van. That's a really long distance to see in the dark that this man had wavy hair. I'm just saying that is one of the reasons I don't trust eyewitnesses from a great distance. Um so that was at 11 p.m. they ended up going about their way. They did see the man drive off in his van and head towards Old Grand Haven Road where he started to drive down Old Grand Haven Road. That was confirmed by security footage. There 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 was no security footage from the gas station. And that is going to play a huge part in this case. The gas station had no security cameras whatsoever. Not outside, not inside, nothing. So the van was caught on three other businesses' security videos. So they were able to get more details on the van. At 11.07 p.m., a regular customer who actually had a routine with Jessica, he would actually he would stop by after work. So he must get out about 11 o'clock and then he would pull up and before he would even get out of her, his car, she would actually turn on the pump for him. So when he gets out of his car and the pump isn't on, he thought, oh, that's strange. So he goes into the gas station to have her turn the pump on, but she's not there. Now, this is like a regular occurrence for them, probably once a week, maybe, you know, once every two weeks kind of thing. He goes into the store and notices that Jessica is not behind the counter. He does look at the cash register because you can see the cash register from from the counter and it's actually opened. And her purse is sitting next to the cash register. So he starts to look around the station. He's looking around, you know, down the aisles, checks like the, the cooler area, calling her name and no response. So he has a gut feeling. Something is wrong. And he actually calls 911 to make a report because something just felt off. And thank God he did. Um... You can hear the 911 call. It's like all over like YouTube and stuff like that. He even starts off saying, I don't know if this is an emergency, but he just had a feeling and his feeling, unfortunately, was right. So he calls 911 and about 1120 to 1125, the police arrive on scene and and begin the investigation. When they see the Jessica's car, did I mention that? Her car is still in the parking lot. Her purse is near the car, the register. They basically knew something had happened. So they begin searching the station and the surrounding area, and that's when they find something. Outside the back door is a small dark red stain on the concrete, which they said could potentially be blood. Um, they also find a piece of a gun accessory. Okay, they didn't identify what type of accessory at that time, but they did find a type, a piece like a a piece. Okay, and I will tell you what it was later. But it at that time it was a piece of an accessory to a gun. So they took a sample of the dark red stain. And they sent it to the lab. Now, I will tell you, I have seen so many different articles and interviews and um, news reports calling this stain something different. One of them says, oh, it was a puddle of, you know, a puddle of blood. Um, there was a... Um, a couple of drops. There was this. There was that. I've seen the picture. It almost kind of looks like a smear of some type. Um, it doesn't look like it had like soaked into the concrete. It wasn't. It was not huge. I would say it was probably no no bigger than a hand, honestly. Um, po- perhaps maybe. Um, let's say somebody was bleeding. And they touched the wound and had blood on their hand and then maybe put their hand on the ground, which now this is something that I thought about. I thought that maybe she was trying to leave a clue. So and you'll understand why I'm saying this in a minute. Personally, I believe let's say she was hit in the head okay because you're not just if you were okay if you're bleeding you're not just going to leave a small bit of blood on the ground okay it's not that's just not logistically how things happen you know that that's not how that works so my thinking is that she got hit or injured in some way shape or form probably not shot just because of the fact that if she was shot i'm going to assume there would be more blood. Okay. So I'm thinking that she was probably hit, perhaps in the head, and she grabbed her head. She put her hand on her head where she got hit. Okay. And then probably tried to struggle to get away. And then as she's being taken out to the car, she put, she purposely, I firmly believe that she purposely put her hand or I, believe that Jessica is the one that transferred that blood onto the ground. This was not a puddle of blood. Okay, this was not, you know, somebody having a cut and the, the blood dripping. No, this was like more like a smear. So I believe that Jessica herself left a breadcrumb. And if that's true, thank God for her. Okay. So that's what I believe. I believe that she's the one that left that blood on the ground. Okay. So going forward, um, the police and investigators contacted the owner and the manager of the station. The owner chose not to come in. I don't know why, whatever. Um, the manager, her name is Sue. She is the one that witnessed the van. So she's like, heck yeah, I'm coming up there. She goes straight up to the gas station. They then contact Dakota. Now, remember Dakota is at home with three-year-old Zevin, and they only have one car, which he does not have. So it takes him a little bit to get up. He had to get a ride, so it took him some time to get up there. Uh, Once Dakota arrived at the station and spoke to police, he provided the alibi that he had been home with their son at the time of their disappearance. And like I said, he only had the one car I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm sure that he couldn't, you know, validate that uh, alibi because their son is three and he was probably sleeping, but everything, you know, they, they let it go. So there's literally like nothing to go by. <laughs> it's insane, but there were a lot of tips that came in. Like the only evidence is the fact that. Is that spot, which I will tell you, they tested and it was Jessica's blood. Okay. So again, if Jessica's the one that left that spot on the ground, yes, 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 yes. How amazing is she? Okay. Hansel and Gretel leaving her breadcrumbs. Heck yeah. Okay. So a tip does come in. About five days after she goes missing, and it's about a person who drives a silver minivan. And police bring him in, and they investigate. They they question him, and they search his uh, minivan, which had been recently detailed and vacuumed to the point where the vacuum lines were still in the in the in the carpet. That man's name is was Jeffrey Willis. And that is an extremely important name that I want you to remember. Now, remember, this is five days, approximately five days. I've heard three days. I've heard five days. I did hear that it was tip number 257. Don't know how accurate that was, but I did hear that from the mouth of one of the investigators in an interview. So a man by the name of Jeffrey Willis was questioned. And... Um, his vehicle was searched just days after Jessica disappeared. So police are, you know, they're following up on every lead. They're checking things, trying to find anything. There's like literally nothing to go by. It's literally, it's like she vanished. She truly just vanished. I will tell you, I am bothered I am bothered by this. And the reason I am bothered by this is as we go on, something happens later on regarding a silver van. And it's only takes a few moments for them to figure out who the culprit is. I don't know why the same was not done when Jessica disappeared. When the manager, Sue, saw a van, we have a timeline. We know what time the last purchase was. We know what time Sue saw the van with her husband. So she was not the only one that saw that van, but they see this van And then minutes later, it's determined that Jessica has gone missing. So this van is such a key, is basically the only evidence to Jessica's disappearance. So when I tell you what happened with the van later on, you're just, we'll come back to this. Okay. Um, so time goes on, like literally there's no, they, there's all kinds of tips come in. I think they said something like 2000 tips had come in, but nothing was leading them to where they needed to be. So seven months, okay, seven months go by and Jessica's mom, Shelly, is talking to one of the investigators and she says, you know, were you able to get anything from Jessica's journals? And the investigator says, what do you mean? And she's like, well, she wrote everything down. Were you able to get anything from her journals? And they're completely clueless. They don't know about these journals. Well, Jessica's mom had told Dakota, Jessica's fiance at the time, to make sure he turned the, because they lived together. So technically, I guess they would be his property because they were in his home. That he needed to turn those journals over to police. And he actually held on to them. And he did end up turning them over after police questioned him about the journals. But there was a reason for that. And it was because Jessica did not hold back in her writing. And she basically told... All of the dirt that was going on within her and Dakota's relationship, including the fact that um, he was very controlling. Um, There were some narcissistic behavior, character traits there. The reason they only had one car and one cell phone was so that he knew what she was doing at all times. Um, A lot of red flags. A lot of red flags. I will tell you that Dakota is not the person who did anything to Jessica. But he's definitely not the kind of guy you want your daughters dating. <laughs> um, Just the fact that he kept that from police for seven months and would have continued to keep it just because he didn't want what Jessica said about him to get out. I'm, I, honestly, I'm completely surprised he did not destroy them. But I think that he probably knew that destroying the journals when other people knew about them would get him in even more trouble because that would be destruction of evidence. So, but the only information that they got from these journals is the fact that at one point, um, Dakota had actually pinned, uh, Jessica down on the ground in front of Zevin. That's the only instance that I heard that he became physical with her, but there was a lot of emotional abuse, um, the controlling behavior and other things like that. And during this time where the journals came out, Dakota was actually arrested on drug charges and this led Jessica's sister, Samantha, to actually file for full custody of Zevin. Uh, I honestly understand that. I don't really feel like, um, I mean, it's not my place to say, but I definitely think that he's got a much better life at this point. He, she, it was a long battle because she had to not only fight Dakota, but Dakota's family as well. But Samantha did win custody of Zevin and he is living with his aunt. And apparently from what I have read, um, Dakota does visit his son regularly, So this also did trigger, uh, the police to take a second look at Dakota. Um, they did name him at one point as a person of interest because, I mean, obviously, I mean, come on, dude lied, you know, I mean, that's going to raise some red flags, but after more investigation, he was eventually cleared. So, we're going to fast forward a little bit to February of 2014. So, this is almost a full year after Jessica disappeared. So, February of 2014, we're in Kalamazoo, Michigan, which is about 80 miles south of Norton Shores. The local police there had a case. A young woman in her early 20s was abducted, thrown into a car, And, unfortunately, she was sexually assaulted. Somehow, by the grace of God, she managed to get away. Her attacker was a man named Brad Allen Mason. And Brad had a history with women. And he had a type. Early 20s, blonde, slight in stature, and they wore glasses. His, quote-unquote, type was eerily similar to Jessica Haranga's appearance. But... This woman's attack was 80 miles away from Norton Shores, but police thought, you know, the the Kalamazoo police thought it, you know, it, it had merit to look into it. The main reason being now the attack on this woman happened in Kalamazoo, but Brad had recently gotten out of jail. He had spent six years in prison And was a registered sex offender. And he was paroled in October of 2012. And in April of 2013, when Jessica disappeared, Brad was living in a halfway house in Norton Shores. When I hear this, I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? How, number one, how was this dude not questioned? At the time of Jessica's disappearance, I found no record of that whatsoever. He's obviously got a type. He is living in a halfway house, like under a mile away from the gas station. I, I, I don't understand how he wasn't questioned. But so, um, Brad, when Brad was identified, and I'm not exactly sure how he became, he was identified in the kidnapping of the woman in Kalamazoo, but he was identified and police went to his house. Now, when police get to his house, Brad knows what's going to happen. Okay. He knows he did wrong. He knows he's going back to jail because he's out on parole. So he did not want to go back to jail and he came out of his house waving a toy gun Um, he had removed the tip off of this. I think it was a squirt gun, a realistic looking squirt gun. It had like an orange tip on it. He pulled that off. Um, and he came out of the house waving this gun and he died by officer assisted suicide, meaning that the officer shot him because they believed they were in imminent danger because he was waving this gun at them. So Brad... You know, this guy is such a tool, I swear to God. uh, Own up to your, uh, pardon my language, own up to your shit. Okay, come on, people. This is just like, who makes these people, who makes people like this? I just, uh, you kidnap somebody, what do you expect to happen? I just don't, uh, okay, anyway. So Brad's dead. Okay, does this mean that any hopes of finding Jessica died with him? Because at this point, I'm thinking he's our number one, right? Like, is he the only one that knows where Jessica is? And police just shot him. Rightfully so. You know, they were afraid for their lives. I get it. I don't fault the police at all. And the police and the people of Norton Shores and, and Muskegon County and all that, they're going to wonder the same thing for quite a while. Like everybody's wondering, did is Brad the person that kidnapped Jessica? And it, and did he take the location of her body to his grave? Can you imagine how her family must've felt about that? Like, where is Jessica? And police and the community are going to wonder this for quite some time. Um, heck, um, let's be honest, they still wonder this. So Brad dies in, what did I say, February? Let me go back. Um, February of 2014. It would... We would not get another break in the case until April 2016, three years after Jessica goes missing. Okay. Three years after she goes missing is the next break we get. Again, and you're going to understand why I'm so irritated by this whole van issue or honestly the van bullshit. I don't understand. And you're going to hear me in a minute. So. The big break in the case comes in the early morning hours of Saturday, April 16th, 2016. Almost three years to the day. One week shy. A 16-year-old girl, who we're going to refer to as M, left a party and started walking home. Now, it's very early. She'd been walking for quite some time. She didn't have her phone. She didn't know where she was. She was lost Probably cold. It's freaking in mid-April. And a man pulls up next to her in a silver van. Yep, you heard me. Silver freaking van. Pulls up next to this girl and offers, being the kind, sweet gentleman that he is, offers to let M use his phone. Okay, she reaches out to accept the phone, but he tells her, no, you could only use the phone if you come get in the car. Now, you're probably going to sit here and think, what the freaking hell? Did she, she's not going to get into this car. Unfortunately, she does. But you also got to think about the fact that she's cold. She's lost. She's scared. She's probably weighing back and forth on what what's the greater risk walking along the side of the road in the dark alone, no cell phone, or getting into the stranger's car. Hindsight 2020. But what do you do? So she gets in to the car to the van. Okay. But as soon, like I said, hindsight, uh, as soon as she gets into this van, He locks the doors and pulls out a gun. Now, I don't know what happened at that moment. I don't know how. I do not know what she did. But somehow her fight or flight instinct kicked in and she managed to get out of that van. I do not know how. I do not care how. I don't even want to know how. All I got to say is more power to her, you rock, and I am so glad you're alive because she got out, and she takes off running. Now, here's the kicker. He tried shooting at her, but it, it sounds to me like the gun jammed because they found un- um there's a word for it. I don't think it's unshot, but they found the bullets that had been discharged and the the police believe that the gun had probably jammed and it left the, the case, the, the actual bullets on the ground. So he must've been like trying to shoot through the, out the window and left them. So she's running, like running for her life, literally towards a house screaming and he's actually calling after her that's wow you would think he would just take off no let's he's gonna try to get her back anyway she gets to a house they let her in thank god because I'm thinking how many times if it were me I would have a hard time If I'm home alone and some girl is coming up to my house, screaming, banging on my door after midnight, do I let her in? Probably not. I don't know. But some somebody did. And thank God they did. Um, They called the police and M was able to give police a description of the vehicle and the man. Okay. They were able to. She told them it was a silver minivan. That is essentially the only real description she had was a silver minivan. Okay. The same description that Sue, the manager, had three years before. That's what I want you to remember. Because this is where I get really confused and really pissed. Okay. Because very quickly, this was not a long period of time. So police take the information of a silver minivan and put it into their system and they come up with approximately 30,000 vehicles registered in that area that match the description of a silver um, minivan. Now remember there was security footage in 2013 of three other businesses and I'm pretty sure that... They could tell it was a town and country, but according to them now, they are saying that by use of security footage in 2016, they were able to narrow down 30,000 vehicles in the state of Michigan to registrations in the immediate area of Chrysler Town and Country's silver minivans to 31 vehicles. couldn't do that in 2013 to me we had the same evidence we had the same details in 2013 as we did in 2016 I would really like to sit down and ask somebody that question because I want to know what the difference was why they couldn't have done what they did in 2016 why could they not have done that in 2013 Okay. That is one of the things that I want to continue to do with this podcast is question things that don't make sense. Because if nobody questions those things, we're not going to get better. We're not going to do better because it just does not make sense to me. Okay. So they took this list now of 31 silver minivans, and they pulled up a photo lineup. And M, again, hero, hero, hero. I happen to know what her name is. And I very well may be reaching out to her just to thank her for being a freaking rock star. But M identified her kidnapper off of this photo lineup. And she did not hesitate. It was an immediate pickup of 46-year-old Jeffrey Willis. Do you remember that name? Hmm? Huh? Do we remember that name? That would be the name of the man that was interviewed just days after Jessica disappeared. And his freshly detailed and vacuumed van was searched. Can you hear me tapping my nails on the table here? What? the hell this makes no sense to me this case fell together like magic in 2016 but the same freaking evidence existed in 2013 and it it no words literally I don't even know what to say so they know that Jeffrey Willis is their guy for kidnapping M. So he leaves work and police basically set up uh, a traffic stop to um, obtain him. Now, before I go into that, to what happened upon that traffic stop, let me tell you, Jeff worked at a Herman Miller factory in Muskegon near Norton Shores. In fact, he had frequently, frequently visited the Exxon station where Jessica disappeared from. In fact, I believe there were at least 15 credit card transactions, including one from the night before. Remember the conversation the night before about her customers looking out for her? Guess who that was? Yep, you got that right, Mr. Jeffrey Willis. So, traffic stop. They pull him over. They have his vehicle, his silver minivan. But it wasn't just a minivan. Jeffrey was basically driving around with a sadistic sexual torture chamber on wheels. Inside of the van, they found ropes, handcuffs, metal bars with restraints, ball gags, porn, chains, Viagra, insulin, which he stole from his diabetic wife, sedatives, gloves, an array of sex toys and the most damning piece of all was a 22 caliber pistol ballistics proved that the gun that was found in the van was the same gun that shot the bullets or jammed the bullets that that were tried to be fired at 16-year-old m after finding all of the items in the van, it led authorities to Jeff's house and to Jeffrey's grandfather's house. Jeff's grandfather had passed away, but he uh, was basically the caretaker of his house, of the grandfather's house. And in the house, they found a lot of the same things they found in the van, but they also found a large collection of of child porn and rape and torture porn, including uh, realistic abduction videos and other things. But there was also a computer that I believe the computer was found at his personal home and they did a forensic search of the computer. And that's where they basically found the Holy grail of evidence They found a folder on his computer that was labeled VIX, V-I-C-S. Inside the folder, there were two subfolders. One was called JLHDZ13, and one was called RSBF2 plus C14. Now, you're probably thinking, what does that mean? Well, let me just tell you here. Inside each of these folders were fo- photos and articles about two women. The folder labeled JLHDZ13 contained photos, articles, and missing flyers of Jessica Lynn Haranga. And the folder labeled RSBF2. Plus, C-14 contained photos and articles about a woman who had been murdered on June 29, 2014, a woman named Rebecca Sue Bletch. When police looked deeper into the file names, it became clear to them that the file names were codes. The first three letters in the file names were the initials of both girls, J-L-H and R-S-B. Then the additional letters matched a corresponding letter in the alphabet, and the last two numbers were equivalent to the year Jessica went missing and Rebecca was killed. JLHDZ thirteen stood for Jessica Lynn Haranga, April 26, sixth, twenty sixteen. I'm sorry, twenty thirteen. And rsbf two plus C fourteen stood for Rebecca Sue Bletch. June 29th, 2014. And to add insult to injury, the password of the computer was J4L27H13. So let's think about that again. J for Jessica, 4 for April, L for Lynn, 27 for the 27th, H for Haranga. And thirteen for two thousand thirteen. Now you may be questioning why. Um, that's different than the other um, of April twenty sixth. Remember, she went missing at approximately eleven p.m. on uh, the twenty sixth, and it is believed that she was killed by Jeffrey on the twenty seventh, and that would explain why the twenty seventh was the password on his computer because that would have been the day that Jessica died. <clears throat> Further forensic testing was able to match the gun, the 22 caliber gun, to the gun that killed Rebecca. Rebecca Sue Bletch had been out jogging in a rural area of Muskegon near her home. She was struck by a hit and run motorist on June 29th, 2014. But upon investigation, in what, in what, was this? Hold on. But upon the investigation, it was discovered that the accident is not what killed her. She had been shot in the head. So, not only was she shot, but then she was um, hit by a motorist. I do not know if the motorist was Jeffrey. I, I don't know. They never found the hit and run driver. But the accident is not what killed her. It was the gunshot to the head. Now, let me tell you about how the gun is connected to Jessica. Remember that piece of the gun accessory that was found by the smear of blood near the back door of the Exxon building? Well, it was a battery cover to a laser sight. And the gun that Jeffrey had was missing the exact same piece. So even though... Um, there's no way to forensically match the gun to Jessica's disappearance. The fact that the piece missing from the 22 caliber pistol that Jeffrey had in his possession is the same piece that was found um, with Jessica's blood. It you can realistically c- um, connect the two. So. As they're investigating the case, Jeffrey's cousin, a man named Kevin Bloom, was brought in for questioning, and he was in there for quite some time, and he ended up telling police that that night on the 26th, actually it would have been early the morning of the 27th, Jeff had called him to come over to their grandfather's home. Now they are cousins, but they are extremely close, pretty much like brothers. They were ra- They were essentially raised like best friends and they did a lot of things together. Um. So Kevin, because you know, when Jeff says jump, he says how high goes right over to the grandfather's home. And when he goes into the basement of the home at in the basement, at the bottom of the stairs, He tells police that he saw a woman with blonde hair, face down, naked, and her hands tied behind her back. He also told police that he believed that she was dead. He then told police that Jeff told him that this was gas station girl. He told police that he helped Jeffrey move her body into the van and bury her in a pre-dug grave off Sheridan Road near Laketon Road in Norton Shores. Um, this is about, I believe, um, maybe four miles or so from, um, the Exxon station. But don't quote me on that. I'm not positive. Um, he even led police to the spot where he said that they buried her body, but uh, there was no body there, and the cadaver dogs did not pick up anything. At that point, <laughs> Kevin says, "Oh, I lied. It, I made it all up." So. Police do not believe he lied. Police do not believe he made it all up. He may have been wrong about the location, but there are just too many things that connect to believe that he made the whole thing up. Um Kevin ended up being charged with lying to police and being an accessory after the fact. He actually pled guilty to lying to the rep- to the police but he pled no contest to the charge of being an accessory after the fact notice he didn't plead innocent or not guilty he pled no contest he was sentenced to time serve and 5 years probation now <laughs> if he had anything to do with this whatsoever now he he did spend quite a bit of time by the time he was convicted of his charges or sentence i'm sorry i believe he had already spent over a year in prison but not enough. I'm sorry. He, if he had anything to do with the scumbag and even so more, when I tell you what his job is in a minute, you're, he needed to be in jail a lot longer, but um, (laughs) yeah, his job. Um, when he was arrested for these crimes, he was suspended without pay from his job. And you're never going to guess where he was a sergeant at the West Shoreline Correctional Facility, a freaking state prison in Muskegon. This guy knows right from wrong. But like I said, you know, Jeff says jump. He says how high. So he's going to do whatever Jeff tells him to do, including burying a body. So there is Mounting evidence against Jeff Willis. He is going to prison for so many things. Not only was he charged with killing Rebecca and Jessica, even without Jessica's body, but he was also charged with the attempted kidnapping of M. So it's like, without a doubt, he's going to jail. He was tried separately for both Jessica and Rebecca's murders on November seventh I'm sorry November second two thousand six two thousand seventeen Willis was found guilty of Rebecca's murder and on two thousand on May sixteenth two thousand eighteen he was found guilty of Jessica's murder now as I've said before this is a no body case they are extremely difficult to prove, but the mounting evidence did pretty much prove that he had something to do with um, her going missing, um, at the very least her being missing and not being able to contact her family. But the fact that there was no blood outside of the smear, how do you prove murder? I did read an article that said that her family actually does not believe she's dead. They, they believe that she's still out there. I would love to hold on to hope like that, but, um, you know, it has been 10 years. On December 9, 2013, a Michigan House of Representatives bill was announced, titled the Jessica Haranga Act, or alternately, Jessica's Law. The bill requires gas stations and convenience stores that are open between the hours of 11 p.m. and 5 a.m. to install and maintain a security camera system or have at least two employees on shift during these hours. The bill would establish a civil fine of not more than $200 for each violation. Businesses excluded from Jessica's law include hotels, taverns, restaurants, pharmacies, grocery stores, supermarkets, or businesses that have more than 10,000 square feet of retail space. But unfortunately, as of today in 2023, the bill has not been passed by the Mid- Michigan legislature. This, to me, is utter BS. So many crimes are solved by security camera footage. So, so, so many. If a camera had been present at that gas station, we may not even be talking about this right now. But gas stations don't want to pay. You know, the owners don't want to pay. Or they're afraid that it may hinder, you know, what, I don't even know. It just, it's stupid. Put up a freaking camera. Or have two people working. It Ignorance is what that is. Another law, a bill, was introduced and passed. This one actually passed. And this one is actually in, related, in relation to the Rebecca Blutz case. Um directly related to Jeffrey Willis and Rebecca Bletch. On March 9, 2018, the Michigan House of Representatives passed a bill that will require convicted defendants to listen to a victim impact statement at sentencing. And the reason this bill was brought into play was because when Jeffrey was convicted of Rebecca's murder, he refused to listen to the victim impact statements that her family's read. Yeah, I, they should have to listen. There's a whole, there's a reason for those impact statements. And they should definitely be forced to listen to them. And that is what Rebecca's law does. It it forces that fact. So again, here we are um, just over, 10 years exactly from the day that jessica disappeared um they are no closer today to finding her jeffrey willis still after all this time maintains his innocence i actually listened and i was not even going to write any of this down because it was so pointless i'm listening to it and this guy is such a tool He there was a a news guy who talked to him on the phone and was asking him questions. And I felt so bad for the guy doing the interview because you could tell how like angry he was getting, but he's basically recanting like the direct evidence that they had against him and he's got no explanation for it. He just kept saying, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Or I'm not going to talk about that or, you know, I'm just going to hang up on you kind of thing. I mean, he still maintains his innocence but can give no explanation to how any of this stuff came into play. Um, When asked about the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of pornographic material they found, he said it was just porn. Nothing, nothing bad. And about all the other stuff. And there there was further evidence, I'm sorry, about the Rebecca Blitz case that tied him. Not only the murder weapon, but her DNA was found on a glove in his van when his van was searched after M um, was kidnapped or attempted, attempted kidnapping, which technically she was kidnapped because he did move with her. But um, when they when they got him at that point. They, the one of the gloves had Rebecca's DNA on it as well as one of the sex toys. So that was something else that tied him to Rebecca's murder besides the gun that was used to kill her and all the photographic pictures he had in his computer. So um, as I said, he maintains his innocence. Kevin Bloom still maintains that he made it all up None of it was true, obviously bullshit, but he is out as a free man walking around um, and won't tell anybody where Jessica is. So her little boy now is 13 years old and does not know where his mom is. Her mom does not know where her daughter is. His sisters do not know where their sister is. And uh, I am actually heading out that way next weekend. And I may actually make a, a stop at that Exxon station because I really want to take a good look at just the area and just to kind of get a feel of things. Um, but it just so, so sad. So, again, we need to make sure that if, if you're interested in the bill information, to get those security cameras put in all gas stations in the state of Michigan, please contact me. I will give you the information. Michigan Unsolved Facebook page. Uh, again, thank you for your support. Thank you to all of you for your listens, your shares. Continue to share because we need to get these stories out there. This That little boy, Zevin, needs his mom one way or the other. Um, just like Kyle Moser's mom had said, she just wanted to give her grandchildren a place to grieve their father. Zevin needs the same thing. He needs a place to grieve his mom. Um, If Jessica is gone and not with us any longer, then he needs a place Then we need to bring her home. So continue to share these stories, get this information out there. And um, until next time, this has been Michigan Unsolved. I'll see you later.